do want to say happy Father's Day to you uh, dads. We love you. We are grateful for you. You're on the front lines of uh, kingdom ministry, of serving your family, of laying down your life uh, for your children and for your spouses. And so we're grateful for you men, um, for your ministry that God has given you, and we pray for you. My wife um, said happy Father's Day to me around 2 o'clock this morning. I was up with a kid for three and a half hours from about 12 to 3.30, 3.45. She looked over at me at one point and goes, happy Father's Day. <laughs> Actually, I think I was just dreaming that. That was in a delusional state. All right, Psalm chapter 38 is where we're going to be this morning. As we um, begin in earnest, uh, having done two weeks of introduction to our summer series entitled Pilgriming with the Psalms, what we're doing is we're walking through various psalms of David and the other psalm writers and um, connecting with what they have to say about the Christian experience what we experience in this world, and also the emotions that we experience as we engage uh, in this world. And we use this image of a journey, of a pilgrimage moving through this world, where we um, endure all sorts of trials and difficulties, but also great joys along the way. And so over the course of the summer, we will be hitting on different aspects of this Christian, this pilgrim experience. And we start where many of us start, when we start our Christian life, which is guilt. In fact, that's often where you start even before you become a Christian. So it draws you to God is the recognition that you are guilty before him and you need a savior. And what I hope to do throughout the summer is it won't simply be negative emotions and negative experiences all summer. Um, that way we're not like, we don't get to August and we're all like depressed. That uh, We just spend like 10 weeks of just like, you know, lament. Uh, we'll have some lament. Uh, we focused on that some last week, which is appropriate with what happened in our country in Orlando, Florida, last Sunday morning. Uh, lament is appropriate and part of the Christian life, and it is a right emotional experience and right form of worship. But what we'll do is we'll bounce back and forth, either within a singular sermon or take one week where we'll look at guilt, for instance, this week, and then I'll be gone next week. But the following week, we'll look at the joy, the experience of being restored to God through his forgiveness. So this week we looked at kind of the, we'll look at the negative emotion and then get to the, the, the mountaintop sort of experience in a couple of weeks. Psalm 38 is where we'll be this morning in God's word. We'll read the entirety of the text of the chapter there, verses 1 through 22. Hear God's word. A psalm of David for the memorial offering. O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. For your arrows have sunk into me and your hand has come down on me. There is no soundness in my flesh because of your indignation. There is no health in my bones because of my sin. For my iniquities have gone over my head like a heavy burden. They are too heavy for me. My wounds stink and fester because of my foolishness. I am utterly bowed down and prostrate all the day I go about mourning. For my sides are filled with burning and there is no soundness in my flesh. I am feeble and crushed. I groan because of the tumult of my heart. O Lord, all my longing is before you. My sign is not hidden from you. My heart throbs. My strength fails me. In the light of my eyes, it also has gone from me. My friends and companions stand aloof from my plague, and my nearest kin stand far off. Those who seek my life lay their snares. Those who seek my hurt speak of ruin and meditate treachery all day long. But I am like a deaf man. I do not hear. Like a mute man who does not open his mouth. I have become like a man who does not hear and in whose mouth are no rebuke. 
But for you, O Lord, do I wait. It is you, O Lord, my God, who will answer. For I said, only let them not rejoice over me who boast against me when my foot slips. For I am ready to fall and my pain is ever before me. I confess my iniquity and I am sorry for my sin. But my foes are vigorous. They are mighty and many are those who hate me wrongfully. Those who render me evil for good accuse me because I follow after good. Do not forsake me, O Lord, my God. Be not far from me. Haste, make haste to help me, O Lord, my salvation. It sends the reading of God's holy and errant and infallible word. May the grass wither and the flower fade. But the word of our God stand forever. The psalmist understands your guilt. Guilt is one of the um, primary experiences of leading us to the Lord. And also, uh, for many of us, a daily experience um, within the Christian walk and the journey that we are walking on. What's so great about the psalms is they enter in. They give voice to our sorrows and our joys. And that's what the psalmist does this morning. The psalmist articulates for us this morning is where we'll begin is he articulates for us and draws out the pain, the painful effects of our guilt before the Lord's. He also shows us, he shows us how God engages with our guilt. In other words, what's God's role in place in regards to dealing with our guilt? And the psalmist finally shows us how we're to deal with our guilt. And so we'll begin first and foremost how the psalmist engages with and articulates the feeling that we often have of guiltiness, the painful effects of our guilt. Guilt, before we get to the emotion, is first and foremost an objective thing. It is a legal place. To be guilty is both legal and relational. To be guilty means you stand guilty or in a place of being judged for having done wrong. You are declared or experience a sense of guilt goes into us, though. That when we have been declared, either by God or by someone around us, or perhaps even by our own heart, as being worthy of judgment, of having done wrong, either relationally or legally, that sense of guiltiness sticks into us. It is experience of living in our broken world and being a fallen people, but that experience is internalized and becomes emotional as well. Guilt is both your legal standing before God, before you are saved, but it's also the emotional state that we experience. I feel guilty. And that feeling of being guilty, I think can actually be better described as shame. Our guilt takes on many aspects or effects of it. It begin to play out and we feel an experience in our life and the psalmist draws us into that. He shows us that our guilt, we feel it emotionally, we experience it physically, but we also see it relationally as well. Let me just deal first with the emotional and the physical. Let's look at verses 2 through 8 for just a moment. Let me read through some of the descriptions here of what the psalmist, and particularly David here who wrote this psalm, is experiencing because of his sin. He says, I feel like I have been shot with arrows, like God's hand is heavy upon me. Verse 4, I feel overwhelmed by my guilt. The weight of the guilt is crushing me. My guilt has brought sadness. So he uses the term, I'm mourning. In verse 8, I am feeble and crushed. I have tumult of soul. In other words, there are storms in his soul because of his sin. This is a theme that runs throughout the Psalms and, yes, throughout the Scriptures. For instance, in Psalm 69, we see the sense of our sin being something that drives us down into a bog. Like we're in mud, that we are stuck. 
in a slew of despair. He says there in verse 69, Save me, O God, I am up to my neck, up to my neck in my sin. I sink in the miry depths, for there is no foothold. He talks about this again in Psalm 40. And then this morning, I think the most apt description of what we feel in our guilt is verse 4 of chapter 38. For my iniquities have gone over my head like a heavy burden. They are too heavy for me. You experience this in your life? What's going on here? He's talking about how he feels. It's the emotional state of being crushed by the legal standing that we have. You are guilty. You are worthy of judgment. And that declaration and that reality of your life, you feel it like a burden that crushes your soul. I can't stand because of the scent of the weight, sense of the weight of the record of my sins. He's talking about shame and guilt here. Pilgrim's Progress, which we'll probably go to many times in the midst of the series, draws us out from the very beginning, this imagery of feeling a burden and weight and being crushed down. Right here at the very beginning, here's how Pilgrim's Progress begins. It says this, As I walked through the wilderness, this is the, the writer, he's going to enter into a dream. As I walked through the wilderness of this world, I lighted on a certain place where was a den, and I laid me down in that place to sleep. And as I slept, I dreamed a dream. And here's what he dreamed. I dreamed, and behold, I saw a man clothed with rags, standing in a certain place, with his face from his own house, a book in his hand, and a great burden upon his back. I looked and saw him open the book and read therein. And as he read, he wept and trembled, and not being able longer to contain, he broke out with a lamentable cry, saying, What shall I do? The writer will go on to describe and talk about that burden that we so desperately need to be lifted is the burden of our sin. It is the burden of our guilt upon our backs. We see this throughout the scriptures. Paul talks about this even as a Christian. I think in the state that he's talking about in Romans 7 where he talks about how the weight of his sin seems to crush his spirits. This is vivid imagery. Our guilt is a burden. When we see, when this, what do you think about when you go to bed at night? If you're like me, you often think about the failures of the day. In fact, I've actually, guilt is so much a part of my life. Guilt even in particular, you know, one of the things that I get to do on a weekly basis is that I get to make mistakes in front of 250 people. It's the great joys of my job. And I've actually, there's actually, <laughs> I've created a nervous tick. On Sunday afternoons, my wife will hear me, hear me do this. <gasps> I literally will think about the things that I said that were either theologically incorrect that were inappropriate to say in front of human beings. <laughs> the weight of my sin, the weight of my guilt, it hits me like getting hit in the stomach. Think about C.S. Lewis and his own walk with the Lord. C.S. Lewis had a great, uh, amazing intellectual battle in coming to the Lord. And he actually hit a certain point. There was this odd period in his life where he became intellectually convinced in God. He became intellectually convinced in his sin, but he had not surrendered his heart over the Lord. In a few, a few days or a few weeks period of time, he said it was the darkest point in his life. See, he was, no longer, he was no longer speaking away his guilt, the reality of his guilt, because now he affirmed that God existed and that he was a sinner. And because of that, the weight crushed his soul until he was relieved of it by the Spirit of God. This crushing internal burden also takes physical effects upon us, doesn't it? It can have great weight upon us. And when we feel things this weighty emotionally, it begins to take a toll on you physically. Think about this. Have you ever been really, really guilty of something? 
they, little kids, man, when you know you've been, you're, you've, you've done something you, you, and you're frightened that you're going to get caught, what do you feel on the inside? You're terrified and your stomach is in knots. Have you ever had the experience of making a mistake, of sinning in front of a bunch of other people and you get called out for it? What do you feel like? You feel sick. See, God has designed us not to be these, these things where our emotions and our physicality are disconnected. They're greatly connected. In many ways, so many of you, because of the sin of bitterness in your life and anger, it's literally creating more stomach acid, and it's eating you up inside, literally, your guilt over sin. It has, and this is what we see in the psalmist as well. He has an emotional experience here, but you also see that he has a physical experience. Look at some of these descriptions that he says in verse 3. My body is shaky and unstable. The physical repercussions of his guilt. Verse 7, his sides are burning within him, and his body is once again, he says, unstable. He's shaky physically because of his spiritual guilt. So, that's the emotional and physical states you experienced this before done something so weighty that you feel like what you have done will crush you. How many of you have done things? I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands. But almost every single one of us in this room have a sin that we've still yet to tell anybody about. Because the, to, the thought to even acknowledge such a sin feels like it would crush you. This is the experience of the Christian life so often when our guilt, when we see it in light of who God is, we feel its weight mightily. But the sense of guilt or a reality of our guilt has repercussions that move out from our internal and even physical experience and move into taking effects in our relational world as well. So the psalmist talks about guilt's effects on our relationships. You see, just, he doesn't talk about this necessarily in the psalm, but you understand this rather inherently, that when you have sinned, what do you want to do when you're guilty, when you feel guilty? You withdraw from relationships. When you sin in a significant way, you want to go to God in prayer. Now you find yourself avoiding the Lord's. When you sin against another human being, what do you find yourself doing? You're separating yourself from them. So you don't have to acknowledge or deal with the weight and pain of that guilt, of that relational rift. It becomes, it becomes a burden that we bear. It takes effect on our relationships. We withdraw and we want to hide ourselves because of our sin. But the, it goes both ways as well. The way other people respond to us and relate to us is also affected because of our sin. Look at verse 11. And the way our friends often treat us. Or that's the, the way, not often necessarily, but the way we experience or sense that our friends are, are treating us because of our sin. Verse 11 David says, my friends and companions stand aloof from my plague, and my nearest kin stand far off. Because of his sin and because of the consequences of his sin, what have David's friends done? Peace out, bro. I'm out of here. Can't be around a sinner like you. Man, you're not really fun to be around. You ever been around a guilty person? I mean, it's not happy, happy, joy, joy, right? It's not what you'd imagine hanging out with on a Friday night. That's not who you want to be with. This is what David is experiencing. This is describing his isolation, his relational isolation that occurs as a consequence or an effect of his sinfulness. You see, even if King David, who can command that you hang out with him, yeah, you've got you to hang out with me. If even King David, with all his courtiers and all his people around him, feels isolated and alone and abandoned in his sin, how much more you and I? Those of us who are, who are supposed to support those who are supposed to support you in your time of sin and weakness, often it feels like they abandon us, that they're angry with us, and so they push us aside. It's not just our friends who do this. Our enemies do this as well. 
See, our enemies like to take advantage of our weak state because of our sin, either because of the sin itself or the effects and consequences of it. Look at verse 12 and then jump down to verses 16 through 20. I'll read this again. Those who seek my life lay their snares. Those who seek my hurt speak of ruin and meditate treachery all day long. And then verse 16. Only let them not rejoice over me who boast, over, boast against me when my foot slips. We'll stop there. See, there are those in this world who are just waiting for you to fail. They rejoice over your sin. You don't have to go very far to see this. I say this wasn't necessarily a sin, but you know the experience and the outrage this week over the family, the young family at Walt Disney World that had a gator drag their child into the lake? What was the, what was the outrage? The outrage because so many people came out of the woodwork chastising this family. We have a sadistic need, a sadistic need to criticize other people, to crush them and kick them while they're down. You don't have to go very far in the Christian world to see this as well. When a pastor fails morally, just go hang out on one of the blogospheres. When you get the internet trolls there, the Christian internet trolls, it's an oxymoron. The Christian internet troll. Christian in name only, really, they're probably just deeply rooted religious people. You see, religious people love it when gospel believers fall. It makes them feel better. It legitimizes their legalism. See, some people are really, really excited when you fall. David experienced this. When his own son Absalom, when his own son Absalom tried to take the, the, the throne away from him, he's leaving the city of Jerusalem. He's fleeing to go out and get ready to do battle. And there is a man, as he is leaving Jerusalem, who comes out and he curses David in his low state. See, our sin, and part of the experience of our sin, the effects of it, is that it gives voice to those who would love to see us fall. The voice of the enemies of God in the gospel, our guilt is thrown back into our face, and they delight to do so. You experienced any of these things in your life? I have. The effects, the pain of dealing with our guilt. It's internal, it's a feeling, it's a recognition of who we are before God. We feel it physically and we also feel it relationally as well. Now here's the question: where's God in all this? Where is God in the midst of our pain? What's his role in our guilt? The role that God plays in our guilt. Here's, here's some really bad news. We're stuck between a rock and a hard place in regards to our options with God and guilt. You see, God is present in our guilt because he is the standard that reveals whether you're guilty or not. And he is also very often, he is the one who directly brings about discipline into your life. He is the one who pours out wrath upon our sin and our guilt. And yet God is absolutely necessary to us in helping us discern whether our guilt is right or not. I'm going to get to that in just a second. Let me get on both sides of this rock in this hard place for just a second. God disciplines us because of our guilt. That's part of the experience. That's part of a relationship between God and guilt. And part of this is because guilt is seen in light of who God is. You know, why, you know why sin feels so weighty and so crushing? Because it's sin against God. And God is what? He is glorious. You know what the Hebrew word for glory literally means? Weighty. Your sin feels like a crushing burden because you sin against a perfect, glorious, weighty God. And you feel the wrath and the, the weight and the glory of who he is when you sin. Not only that... But God, in his graciousness to us, 
also brings about discipline for those he loves. And we feel that discipline. This is what the psalmist is going through in this psalm. He says he feels as if God is coming after them. It feels like God is the one who's brought about his present sufferings directly as a response to his sin. Your, arrow, your arrows have pierced me, God, he says. Your hand has come down heavy upon me because of my sin. Now, this is tricky for us, isn't it? We don't like this idea, once we're, particularly once we're saved, about a God who does dialogue with our sin by immediately bringing discipline into it. So God does. We can't, well, it appears here that the psalmist is even saying that he is enduring physical illnesses, physical suffering, as God's response, as a means of discipline in his life because of his sin. That's, that's a tricky thing. Does that mean that whenever we get sick, we should then therefore say, well, did I sin? Is God punishing me? Is he disciplining me for my sin? Well, we see in many places that that's absolutely not the case. There's not a specific correlation all the time between our sin, our sickness, and our sin. For instance, Job, he was a righteous man. He was not, he, the tumult in his life was brought about because of the testing that needed to be brought into his life. Jesus was sinful, and yet no one, it was sinless, excuse me, he was sinless, and yet he suffered unlike anybody else. And John 9, there's actually a man who's brought, who's um, crippled. Uh, in a, in a, in a, he's born blind, and so the Pharisees come to Jesus, and they ask him, did this man or his parents sin? And Jesus says, what? Neither. This, was brought, this malady was brought into this man's life so that God may get the glory. But we should remember this, that even though there are not always a correlation between our sickness, our emotional suffering, our physical suffering, and our relational suffering as a discipline for our sin, but there is sometimes in which that might be the case. It may indeed be God's discipline in our life. The Bible makes it clear that not our suffering is caused because of our sin, but that it might be caused by our sin. David acknowledged that this is suffering is connected to his sinfulness. As long as we are sinners, you and I must recognize this possibility. Now, how do we, how do we evaluate that? Well, I'm not sure we ever truly, we may never know why the suffering and the difficulties of our life are there. James Montgomery Boyce, who's a pastor, a very famous pastor and a great commentator on God's word, he's given us four questions, though, I'm going to give to you just as an aside here. Diagnostic questions to ask, us, ask ourselves when we're sick or suffering internally or physically. It says this, first, you should ask yourself if there is some unconfessed sin. He legitimizes this truth. That there may indeed be a connection that God is disciplining us for, that he is drawing us back to himself. That could be one. But second, he says we should also ask ourselves the question, is God simply shaping my character? Is he moving and rubbing off the rough edges in my life? He may not be responding to a specific sin in my life, but he's responding to my sinfulness, to my brokenness, to my humanity. Third, is God using my suffering to bring glory to himself, as is the case in John 9? Is God seeking to bring glory to himself to show how great his, his work is in me that I can endure the suffering and yet give glory and honor to him? And the fourth question is related to that. Is this, is God bringing this suffering, whether it be emotional, relational, or physical into my life, to show my, how I display my love for God apart from his gifts? That God, even if you take all earthly blessings away from me, I still love you. Good diagnostic questions to ask. At the very least, it puts yourself in a place of humility, a posture before the Lord in which you're saying, God, is there a place in which I have sinned and you are bringing discipline into my life? 
Our guilt is there because we have a perfect, glorious God, but also because sometimes the painful effects of our guilt are because God is bringing discipline into our lives to draw us back to Him. All right, so that's the rock. Now the hard place. For some, the response to this is this, to this sense of guilt, is I grew up in in a religious setting, and I got sick and tired of feeling guilty. Like, God was always angry with me, and so what is the response? Well, the best way to get rid of guilt, if it's guilt in light of who God is, is to get rid of God. If I can get rid of God or get rid of the idea of guilt in general, then I don't have to have this guilt in my life. I will not live by God's standards. Instead, I'll choose to live by my own standards or someone else's standards or the world's standards. We're going to choose some other system. But what we don't realize is that there will always be a standard to live up to. And it doesn't matter which standard it is, you're probably not going to live into it perfectly. You see, often what we have done is we have traded God's perfect standard, his objective holy standard, for the ever-moving, subjective, moving target of your own standards or the world's standards. And it's driving you crazy. You ever had this experience? You ever been, worked for a, a, a normal 8-to-5 job and you felt great? You clocked in, they told you when to leave, and then you decide, I'm going to start my own company. I'm going to be self-employed. Did you work less at that point? No. In fact, you worked all the time. In fact, you, could, you always felt when you weren't working like you should be working. Why? Because the standards within you were driving you crazy. They were driving you to, to, to madness. This is how we often live our life, is we have chosen other standards, but those standards are always moving and shaking away from us. It's who, that we have different standards, different people want different things from us, and even our own fickle hearts one day will want us to live a certain way, and then the other will change. We do everything we can, and yet we still live with a sense of condemnation, as if we're not living up to our mother's standards, our father's standards, our own standards. The reality is this, is you cannot get rid of guilt and shame. It won't ever happen. You can't get rid of it unless you're a psychopath, right? And that's not a good place to be. A sociopath, someone right, who can kill and doesn't feel any guilt or remorse, you're still going to be objectively and legally held responsible for that. You just don't have to feel it anymore. That's soul leprosy. Everybody's going to have to agree with me on this. You, 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 there's a certain way you have to be able to evaluate whether your guilt is right or wrong. We all feel guilt throughout our lives. It's the question is, what are we going to do with this? Will we resist the guilt and try to push it away? Or we embrace the guilt? Will we say that all my feelings of guilt are correct? Or will we say, no, 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 all guilt, that's, that's, that's a standard that's being pushed upon me. I'm going to reject all sense and feelings of guilt. Let me say this. You, if you reject all, all sense of guilt, that's not a good place, right? Wouldn't it have been lovely if Hitler had actually listened to some of his uh, conscious thoughts? We could have, could have probably been saved some significant suffering in this world had Hitler listened to some of the guilt within his own heart and his own mind. See, we, at some point, there are some times where we actually have to listen to our conscience, have to listen to our guilt, and repent because of it. But on the other side, there are other people who feel guilty all the time, even though they haven't done anything wrong. There are some people whose lives are driven crazy because they're always listening to the standards of some other person, and they're not actually sinning as in the light in front of God. They're simply falling short to some other standards. You ever talked to anybody or experienced anybody who was abused? One of the experiences of someone who is physically, um, sexually abused is a, in a younger age is that even once they get married, 
And they're in a Christian, godly, biblical marriage that physical intimacy feels dirty. They feel guilty. Are they sinning? No. So there's times in which we don't necessarily listen to our guilt. Here's what I'm, here's what I'm getting driving at. That if you don't have an objective, eternal, unchanging standard, you'll be crushed. That's the hard place, right? And yet, if you have an eternal, objective, unchanging standard, what happens? You'll be crushed. This is really bad news. You see, whether you keep God and try to make yourself right before God, which is the religious way of doing things, you're going to be guilty. Or if you reject God and take the irreligious approach, you're still going to feel guilty. And you'll never know quite sure whether you're supposed to be feeling guilty or not. You see, we need one objective standard. I saw that yesterday, I think it was, has anybody found the Babylon Bee? Babylon Bee is awesome. It's like the onion for Christians. Yesterday, it was like this, this always changing standard, even for Christians, is driving us crazy. And the Babylon Bee had this headline. It was progressive Christian who's always trying to fit their morality to the culture around them. Progressive Christian is demoralized because they realize in 10 years, the things, their positions they hold now will be considered bigoted in 10 years. Right? Some of the positions that you held five years ago as a Christian, which were quite progressive, are now considered to be quite bigoted, right? Our culture standards move and shake, and so we need one singular standard. And Paul talks about this, just as an aside in 1 Corinthians 4, about the freedom of actually going to God's singular objective standard. 1 Corinthians 4, verses 3 and 4 says this. Paul says, But with me it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human courts. In fact, I do not even judge myself, for I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. So simply because I cannot think of anything that I'm guilty of doesn't mean I'm actually not guilty. So what does he say? It is the Lord who judges me. Do you hear what Paul is saying? He says, listen, I don't have to listen to the opinions of everybody around me. They are not, their judgments don't matter. It's God's judgments that matter. And in fact, actually, I don't have to listen to my own judgments. Even when that judgment is saying, you are not guilty. It's God's judgment that matters most. There's a freedom in that. There's a simplicity to that, Right? At least you know where the problem lies. And knowing that you're guilty before God. So, Paul says, I don't care what the world thinks. In fact, I don't even care what I think. What really his answer is, we must simply only care about what God's judgment, his declaration of guilt or innocence is over us. So we're stuck between a rock and a hard place still though, right? We can't get rid of our guilt. We can, and, and if we can't get rid of God, then we can't get rid of our sense of truly objective guilt. So what are we going to do with our guilt? What does the psalmist do? What does he do? The psalmist prays his guilt. The psalmist, this, the psalm, this, there's, there's, um, there's messages within the structures of the psalms. And the structure of this psalm goes this way. Is that it's based around four prayers of Paul. Verse four, 1, verse 9, verse 15... And in the final verse. And we see that there in that particular structure. That he goes, he has a prayer, one line prayer, and then he gives a lament. He describes his guilty situation and the effects, the painful effects of his guilt. And then he goes back to a one line prayer. And then he describes more of his painful effects, one line prayer. More painful effects, closes the psalm with a one line prayer. What does Paul do? with his guilt. How do we find relief for our guilt? We must pray our guilt. Let's just walk through these four prayers of, Paul, of David. 
Verse 1, a psalm of David for the memorial offering. O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. David is essentially saying, God, I deserve your wrath, and I deserve your anger. He's not saying, God, I'm righteous. You, you don't have a right to punish me for this. You don't have a right to discipline me for this. Not at all. The emphasis is not upon the discipline. The emphasis here in the words, in the sentence, is upon God's anger and his wrath. What David is asking is that God not discipline him in anger. That he would instead discipline him like a father. Right? This is what Hebrews talks about, that you have a good father. In fact, you know you're God's child when he disciplines you. Not as a father who is pouring out judgmental wrath upon us, but as a God who is merciful and loving and steadfast. David sees and acknowledges that he deserves God's anger, but he's asking God to be merciful anyways, to pull up short. The second prayer is this, O Lord, all my longing is before you. My sign is not hidden from you. What is he saying here and what is he praying? He builds upon the first prayer in verse 1 by crying out to God's character and his love for us. In other words, what he's saying is, God, you see the suffering I am enduring because of the guilt of my sin. Now, will you please see and have compassion upon me? Isn't what Jesus does when he comes and looks over Jerusalem? It says he looked and he saw that there were a sheep without a shepherd, and he had compassion on them. Throughout the Psalms, God is described as a God who is great in compassion. He's slow to grow angry and rich in love. He expects that because of God's character, that when God sees his suffering because of his guilt, that God will be merciful. Because it's like the experience that I have, that even though I'm the means often of bringing discipline into my child's life, immediately after good, if I'm being a good father and not disciplining out of anger, is I long to be restored to my child to bring the pain and suffering of their sin to an end. That's what a good father does. That when he sees your sorrows and your sufferings, because of the discipline he's brought in your life, he is merciful because he loves you. Prayer number three. But for you, O Lord, do I wait. It is you, O Lord, my God, who will answer me. This is really important to see. Because David doesn't take, but David doesn't take the relief of his grief into his own hands here. What's he say? I've confessed my sin. I've cried out for mercy. And then he says, God, I'll wait for you right here. Is that how we confess? Here's often our experience of confession. I'm going to give it to you very specifically for some of you that have experienced this over and over and over and over again. What about you men who have fallen to lust day in and day out for the last forever? The experience and the sense of guilt. What do we think we need to do before God in order to cleanse ourselves? The response of the human heart so often when we feel this guilt before God is we say, what do I got to do to show God how bad I feel for my sin? I got to beat myself up. How, okay, I've apologized five times. Am I crying yet? Oh, I'm, I'm not crying. I'm not sorry for my sin. I'm not crying. I don't feel awful about this. I've got your hand. We're wringing our hands. Right? David says, no, no. God, be merciful to me, and I will wait. What's he doing? He's putting his salvation not in his ability to confess rightly, but in God's mercy. He's putting the weight of activity not upon himself and whether he can pay the right indulgences of his life, but whether God will be merciful and come and save his soul. That's what he's doing. So often, what do we do? We self-flagellate, right? 
got to be careful with that word as a pastor. Say self-flatulate. You don't want to be self-flatulating. Now, that's an awful experience to self-flatulate. You mean, but often what we do is we self-flagellate. We just beat ourselves up. Right? Isn't this your experience? You stupid person! Stupid, 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 stupid! How could you do this? Berating and beating ourselves up as if, man, if I just beat myself up enough for my sin, God will see that I'm really sorry and finally be merciful to me. This is putting the onus on you. The means of relief is upon you and what you can do. This is... Perfection by confession. No, put the onus on God. Wait for him. Prayer number four. Do not forsake me, O Lord. O my God, be not far from me. Make haste to help me, O Lord, my salvation. This is simply a repeat. Just a cry out to God for mercy. O God, be merciful to me. Here's what David shows us that we must do with our guilt. Two things. One, we must go to God in prayer. Because ultimately when you sinned against somebody... And as David says in Psalm 51, it doesn't matter even if you're the one who's killed another person, it's more important to go to God because ultimately that's who you sinned against. It's ultimately his standards. So you go to God in prayer. And then two, when you go to God in prayer, what do you do there? Very simple. You cry out for mercy. Really difficult, right? The psalmist is saying, though, the experience of the Christian life is you walk the pilgrim road and journey and you will fall. And you will sin. And some of you are going to make, commit sins that are going to bring so much shame upon your life. It will feel like it's going to crush your soul. Oh, pilgrim, oh, weary journeyer, what do you do then? Throw yourself at the mercy of God. And what will God do in response to your cries? Will he forgive you? Very simple answer here. Yes. Here's the bad news. You're guilty. There's no way of getting around that. Here's the good news. The good news is this, that we, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's a promise, brothers and sisters. That's a promise for the pilgrim road, that if you confess your sins, he forgives you. How does he do that? Listen, one more time, we're running to, to Psalm 38 here. I just want you to see who ultimately experiences what David experiences in the psalm? Look at some of the words that go... He says that he stands like a deaf man before the accusations. Who actually stood quiet before accusations? Jesus did. His body experienced the consequences, the weight of his guilt. Who truly, actually, physically experienced the consequences of guilt? Jesus did. Right? His body was broken. The wrath was received that you and I deserved. And was the cross emotional? Yeah. There's a lot of crying and screaming and lamenting at the cross. You see, the, the true, the fullest experience of guilt was felt at the cross by one who was guiltless. You see, Jesus takes our sin he, in a sense, gets the full experience of our guilt and our sin. And we get what? Mercy. Mercy is what we get. Romans 8, 1. There is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You see, in Christ Jesus, you are guaranteed mercy. No question about it for those that confess their sins and trust in Christ Jesus. 
Therefore, we can pray as David prayed. There is a lamenting prayer here, but there is also significant boldness in this prayer. Hebrews 4, right? Jones referred to it at the beginning of the service, and we'll end the service there. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. The reason why you can go to God in prayer, right? That was application number one. Go to God. It's because Jesus has made a way. He has ushered you into the throne room, and in fact, he prays on your behalf. And when, so this, this is what this means for your heart. When your heart tomorrow screams the pain of conviction, when you're experiencing the painful effects of still living in this broken world where you're experiencing the painful discipline of your sin and the guilt thereof, take your guilt, your sin-stained, star, your sin-stained heart to the Lord's. And hear his voice. Here's what John, 1 John 3, 2 says this, that for whenever our hearts condemn us, that's your voice, your heart crying out, guilty, 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 it's not lying. But he says this in the second part of the verse, God is greater than our hearts. That means this, that may the voice of mercy cry louder than the voice of condemnation within your soul. Let's pray. Oh, gracious Heavenly Father, I do pray Lord, I want to jump right to mercy but gracious Heavenly Father, I pray that our sin would appear great that Lord, like the psalmist that we would be willing to walk through and evaluate and connect our suffering and our discipline to our sin that Lord, we would not ignore and push aside our guilts but Lord, we would be willing to engage with it. That Lord, we would be willing to look it straight in the face. That Lord, we would be willing to hear the voice of condemnation when it's true. But gracious Heavenly Father, I thank you that when we go to the standard that you have given us, that as we stand before you, that there is one who comes up next to us and then stands in front of us and says, his guilt has been paid for. He is forgiven. And I cry mercy for his soul. And so gracious Heavenly Father, may the spirit of the living God, that even when our sin appears grace, that your grace would appear greater to us. We thank you that that is ours, that is a gift of ours in Christ Jesus. And so I pray that we would know it more deeply each and every day. We, I pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.